Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling is a live call-in radio program providing doctrinal dialogue, cultural commentary, and insightful interviews with some of today's foremost Christian authors and leaders. Knowing the Truth is the outreach ministry of the Mountain Bridge Bible Fellowship in Traveler's Rest. The goal of the church and the radio program is to seek the glory of God in the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of the saints by the ministry of the Word. For more information, go to www.knowingthetruth.org. Here with today's edition of Knowing the Truth is Pastor Kevin Bowling. Hey, welcome into this edition of the Knowing the Truth radio program. This is Pastor Kevin Bowling. So glad that you joined us on the broadcast today. The uh, Starting the, yesterday on the broadcast this week, I've been looking at the, uh, the subject of the active and passive obedience of Christ. I've actually covered the subject of the active obedience of Christ. I covered it um, earlier uh, last week. I had covered it pretty much. But yesterday on the broadcast, just to bring us back up to speed and to add a couple other elements to it, to the, the, to the subject matter, I decided to go ahead and go over it a little bit more in uh, the content of it yesterday on the broadcast. So having looked at the active obedience of Christ last week and then a recap yesterday, I wanted to turn then to look at the subject of the passive obedience of Christ. Now, uh, the text that I read this past Lord's Day in our morning worship service at the uh, church that I have the privilege of pastoring, the Mountain Bridge Bible Fellowship, we're located out there at 940 Mush Creek Road in Traveler's Rest. And in our morning worship service, I opened by reading from the Gospel of John, and in John 19. Now, in John 19, of course, is the section where we find the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in John 19, I, I read from verses 28 down to verse 30. In uh, John 19:28, it begins this way. This is Christ on the cross. And let me just uh, preface my reading of it by just saying, too, that there are, there are seven statements that the Lord Jesus Christ makes from the cross. And we're picking up the narrative in John 19, where at the fifth and the sixth statements of Christ from the cross. There remains one more statement after this that is not covered in the book of John, but it is listed in, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter, I think it's 23, and uh, there we find the Lord Jesus Christ making the final statement from the cross. This is where the Lord Jesus Christ says, uh, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And uh, so the final statement that is made by Christ there at the end. Uh, here in the Gospel of John, these are the, this is the last statement that is recorded by Christ is made here, the sixth statement. But I'm also reading the fifth statement that Christ makes from the cross because it really ties in very well with our study where we had looked at both the idea of the, uh, the, the, I should mention, the humanity of Christ and the human nature of Christ. Some of that is seen in this fifth statement. Also, not just the humanity of Christ, but something about the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned in this fifth statement from the cross as well. And then, of course, in the sixth statement that when we get to it, 
then we find the uh, the actual part that deals with, I think, a, a fitting conclusion to looking at both the active and the passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read the passage to you, and uh, the comments that I just made will make more sense to you. It says this in verse uh, 28 of John Gospel in the 19th chapter, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was, there set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and they put it upon hyssop, and they put it up to his mouth, And when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. And so just those three verses there, verses 28 to verse 30, were given the statements that are made by the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the fifth statement from the cross is, I thirst. The sixth statement from the cross is, It is finished finished. And so both of these uh, tie into the subject of the active and the passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just state, before we look at the the verses, uh, you know, in specifically themselves, let me just state a couple of the truths about the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ consists in Christ paying the penalty of sin by his suffering and his death, and thus discharging the the debt of all of his people. Because of our sin, we had a liability. We had a, a debt that was owed to God. We ought to have done all of the sins of commission, or not have done the sins of commission, and we ought to have done all of the sins that we committed in the sins of omission. There were certain obligations of things that we ought to have done that God requires of us to have done before him, being his creatures, because he is the holy God who has created us. There are things that we ought to have done. So the the sinfulness of man is found in doing those things that were forbidden of us to do and not doing those things that we ought to have done. Both of those two things, having uh, failed miserably in in performing those things that were given to us to do. We have this tremendous amount of debt that is owed to God. Christ, in paying the penalty for the sins of his people by his suffering and death, he has discharged that debt on behalf of his people. That's the passive obedience of Christ. And when we think about this, the Uh, one of the important things to think about is that the sufferings of Christ did not come upon Christ accidentally. And what I mean by that is that his sufferings were not the result of a purely natural circumstances taking place. Now, of course, we're talking about when we say the natural circumstances, we're not saying that suffering comes upon people by happenstance and so forth. We believe in the providence of God, and God brings all these circumstances and situations to pass in our life. But what I'm referring to is that we also talk about that uh, things happen in this world because we are living in a sin-cursed world. 
And for when considering us, apart from Christ, we're thinking also that we have the remaining sin that is in our life, and because of the remaining sin, the sin-cursed world that we live in, the animosity of those who are uh, against the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent is always going to be at animosity against the seed of the woman. And so because of all of these uh, cases, there are certain things that come upon us. There are certain suffering that we endure in this world. But when we're speaking about Christ and his sufferings, we say that the sufferings of Christ uh, were not purely uh, the result of purely natural circumstances. Rather, what we find with Christ is that the sufferings of Christ were judicially laid upon him as our legal representative and were therefore really part of the of the penal sufferings of of Christ the penal suffering that was laid upon Christ by the father where he was taking our our liability upon himself we speak of the penal substitution it is a punitive suffering it, it penal means you know he was taking the punishment that was due to our sins. I was reading a brief article by A.W. Pink, and in this article, A.W. Pink talks about the subject of the penal sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And very interesting, some of the comments that he makes here in this article. And when we think about the penal suffering, just in order to keep it straight in your mind, just uh, think uh, roughly about the penalty being inflicted upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the basic understanding of it, the penalty. Well, this this is a um, part of uh, A.W. Pink's what's called Studies in the Scripture, and part of this uh, study in the Scripture is his dealing with the subject of the penal work of Christ. He says this in the, the opening paragraph. It says that Scripture plainly teaches that God is both holy and righteous and that Justice and judgment, not love and pity, are the establishment of God's throne. And he references Psalm 89 and verse 14. He then says, thus there is in the divine essence that which abhors sin for his, for its intrinsic sinfulness, both in its respect of pollution and in the aspect of its guilt. The perfections of God are therefore displayed by both forbidding and punishing the same. He has pledged himself that, quote, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's taken from Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4. Therefore, in order for a full satisfaction to be rendered to God, sin must be punished. The penalty of the law must be enforced. Consequently, as Savior of his church, Christ had to suffer vicariously the infliction of the law's curse on behalf of his people. So there he's uh, setting up and as to why or the necessity of the, the penal work or the, the penal substitutionary suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. So um, he goes on to say here, he says, what we shall now seek to show 
is that the sufferings and the death of Christ were a satisfaction to divine justice on behalf of the sins of his people, in case any should object to the use of the term satisfaction. And then he goes on to talk a little bit about satisfaction, but it's basically that enough was done. Satisfaction is an important term when we think about the atonement, but it basically means that the doing of enough, and enough was done by Christ in order to satisfy divine justice on our behalf. So Christ taking to himself human flesh, he went through, made himself liable to suffering in order to pay the penalty that was due to his people because of their sinfulness. The original sin that was committed, the, uh, the stain of original sin that was upon their soul, all of the guilt that is associated with that sin, as well as all of the actual transgressions that they have committed. So when we speak of the penal substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, we're thinking about that it was punitive. It was uh, put upon Christ as a result of the punishment of our sins. Now, atonement, as I mentioned, is the satisfaction of divine justice by the Lord Jesus Christ in both his active and his passive obedience, which he procured for his people by a perfect salvation. He, he, he won for them. He achieved, he accomplished a perfect salvation for his people by uh, rendering satisfaction to God for what God deserved and what God required in order for us to have a right relationship with him. So in his active obedience, his life, and in his passive obedience, his death, Christ procured a perfect salvation on behalf of his people. Now, when we think of the word atonement, which is the, the very basis of the passive obedience of Christ, you know, it's the core of that subject. The Old Testament word that is translated to make atonement, it means to cover over so as not to be seen. And there is a number of, in the Old Testament, there are a number of words that are used that are associated with the word atonement. So the main word, atonement itself, or to make atonement, means to cover over as to not be seen. But then the associated words, they are often translated this way, a number of ways in the scripture. The associated words are translated as forgive. Uh, they're also translated as, uh, to mean the lifting up, or they're also translated as to be sent away. And when these three words are all taken into consideration, along with the word atonement itself, to cover over so as not to be seen, the result is so that the, the person to whom these things are done for are said then to be at peace or at rest. Now, the uh, theologian uh, G.T. Shedd, he said this. He said the connection of the idea then in the Hebrew text appears to be this. The suffering of the substitute bullock or rams had the effect of covering over the guilt of the real criminal and to make it invisible to the eyes of God. When this is done, the transgressor is said to be at rest. So there's the idea. Do you see? 
I, you know, we're going through this in this this level, this depth of this study that we've been going through. And we're going through this because I want you to see something of the uh, of the mechanism, you know, of the the means by which God uh, uh, reconciled or is reconciled to His people. I don't want to just state the word salvation or some of the accompanying words that go along with it and just, you know, uh, restate the word just in different phrases. I want to do something different than that. I want us to delve down deeper into the actual methodology that is revealed to us in the Scripture. And in this methodology, I want you to see, you know, how the wisdom of God has has designed our salvation. And why I'm doing this is not just to go through some sort of a theological exercise. Uh, I'm doing this so that at the end of our study, you will have a greater appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a greater appreciation for God the Father in his design of the plan of salvation and what the way that he is is, uh, designed for this to be worked out. You have a greater appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ and his humiliation and coming to do for us what we were completely unwilling and unable to do for ourselves. And then you will have a greater assurance of your salvation. If you've come to the saving knowledge of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you, you'll have a greater depth of assurance in that, because you'll see how all this was worked out by God through Christ all throughout the, the scriptures and this will give you a greater sense of assurance. Your, your assurance won't be just resting upon your mere profession of faith or your, your mere level of sincerity or understanding of the gospel when you came to salvation in Jesus Christ. It won't be resting upon that merely. It'll be resting upon all of these objective truths that have, God has graciously revealed to us in the Word of God for our greater appreciation of God himself and God, the incarnate God in Christ, and also for a greater understanding and appreciation and assurance of the salvation that has been provided for us. We get that just looking at the Old Testament words, but we have the New Testament words in the Greek, and the, the version of the word atonement that is given to us there, it means to propitiate or to appease, to propitiate or to appease. Well, the, to propitiate, that's what it means, to, to appease the wrath of God. And so, uh, again, G.T. Shedd says this about this subject, the word in the New Testament. He says, the consequences of this propitiation is that the punishment due to sin is released, or it is not inflicted upon the transgressor. And then he goes on to say that this release or non-affliction of the penalty is forgiveness in the biblical representation. You see, so there's more to it. Uh, I'm afraid that many people, many professing Christians, even that I speak to today in our modern day and age, without, you know, delving down into the mechanics of, and the, the word studies of these things and so forth are missing out on, on what these words actually mean. And sometimes I think then that they refer to the idea of forgiveness or of pardon from God 
in in a a little bit of a flippant way, in a way that 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 comes across. I, I'm sure they don't intend it this way, but it comes across that God just arbitrarily just overlooks their sin. You know, just decides not to hold them accountable for the sins that they have committed. Now that is a that is a uh, a statement that is found nowhere in the Scripture. You know, the souls that sins, it shall die. God, God never, ever just overlooks sin. He can't because of his nature, because of his holiness. So he will always require that sin will be paid for. It'll either be paid for uh, by the hand of the actual sinner themselves or by the substitute, a worthy substitute that pays for their sins on behalf of uh, that person. And that's what, of course, we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The atonement is necessary because God has decreed that it is the only way whereby he can be just and yet still be able to justify sinners. See, both of these two things have to be carefully guarded. The justice of God has to be guarded while at the same time God is seeking to justify the sinner. It was this dilemma that was dealt with in the death of God's Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The necessity of the atonement is based upon God's nature and God's will. By God's nature, he is holy and he must punish sin. But by his gracious will, he is also decreed that there would be the salvation of the elect. So Christ's work of atonement is the only way to execute that degree, the, that decree of God without doing damage to the holiness of God. So it's the only way that this can be accomplished is by Christ doing this work on our behalf. Christ's atonement is the, the grounds upon which we have been reconciled to God. This is why Christ uh, speaks about this necessity of, that, of him being crucified as the as the the only means of bringing about the salvation of his people in John chapter 3 and in verse 14 the Lord Jesus Christ said this he said the son of man must be lifted up he must be lifted up you remember Peter when uh, Christ was speaking about his sufferings and so forth that he must go through Remember, Peter called the Lord Jesus Christ off to the side and rebuked him and rebuked him about that, basically, and paraphrasing, but that the Lord needed to stop speaking about this idea of the suffering that he had to go through, that Peter would defend him and not allow for the suffering to take place, to which Peter received from the Lord Jesus Christ some of the harshest words that the Lord has ever spoken to one of his disciples. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. And so um, he said to Peter, thou savoreth the things of men, not the things of God. So Peter, in a man-centered view, was trying to um, devise a way of salvation apart from suffering apart from the appeasement of sin by a suffering Savior upon the cross at Calvary. And the Lord said, no, you're, you're savoring the things of men, 
You've got a man-centered view of how this is going to take place. You must have a God-centered view, and a God-centered view is that can't be done. The, the salvation of God's people cannot be done that way because the part that it would leave out is that it would do damage to the justice of God, the righteousness of God would be damaged by uh, that not being taken into consideration of the payment of sin in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what the atonement is all about. uh, A simple way, one way to remember the word atonement and what what the atonement does for us is a play on the word atonement. Yesterday, I gave a little bit of a play on the word justification. And I said it was just as if I had always obeyed and just as if I had had never disobeyed, had never sinned. So it spoke about the, the two sides of the idea of the justification that we have before God. Well, there's a little bit of a play on the word atonement that you can... I, I use these things for myself just as mental hooks to try to very quickly remember what is contained in these these theological terms. But with the word atonement, I think of at-one-ment, at-one-ment, the idea that the atonement is necessary in order to bring us into union with God through Christ, in order to bring us into a right relationship with God through our union with Christ. And our union with Christ is brought about through his atonement, his paying for the price of our sins upon Calvary's cross. And so uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back from the commercial break, I want to look at a number of the characteristics of the atonements of Christ, of the atonement of Christ, singular. Uh, you know, there's a number of things that we can look at that, that Christ did in the atonement or Uh, certain aspects of the atonement itself that are very instructive to us. I want to look at that when we come back from the break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Stay tuned. You're listening to Knowing the Truth right here on Christian Talk. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. You're listening to Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling. For more information about today's program, the radio ministry, and the resources we offer, go to www.knowingthetruth.org. Welcome back to Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling. Information regarding the resources referenced on today's program can be found at www.knowingthetruth.org. Now here to continue with today's program is Pastor Kevin Bowling. Okay, welcome back into the second half of the Knowing the Truth radio program. We've been talking about the passive obedience of Christ, and at the end of the first half, I ended by introducing the idea of the atonement as being the, you know, the core issue, the primary part of the passive obedience of Christ is found in Christ's atonement. And I mentioned that there's a number of characteristics that are ascribed to Christ's atonement throughout the Scriptures. One of them is, when we think about the atonement, that we should keep in mind, that it is, uh, it is vicarious or substitutionary. In other words, it was rendered by the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. You know, for having the idea that it's in their room or in their stead, 
is the way that it's uh, termed in the scripture. It was, it was not merely done for their benefit, but in their place. There's a difference. You know, sometimes something can be done for the benefit of a person. That's one thing. There are certainly benefits, uh, great and glorious benefits for what Christ has done for us in our salvation. But it wasn't just done for our benefit. It was done in our place. Christ, uh, what he did is he took our actual punishment upon himself. That's what Christ did. In Matthew chapter 20, in verse 28, it says, even as the Son of Man came not to minister, but to, uh, not to be ministered to, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So the ransom part there is dealing with the idea that there was a price that needed to be paid to God for our sins, for our sins against him. That price that we owed to God was paid for, uh, for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was paid for us by Christ in our stead, not just for our benefit, but in our place, um, Christ paid that on our behalf. In our place, condemned he stood, the hymn writer said in one of the lines of a hymn, and that's a, a true rendition of what was done by the Lord Jesus Christ. We should mention, too, that in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ involves suffering, uh, I've said a lot about the subject of suffering over this past year because uh, I had uh, did a study in the book of Peter, and Peter had a lot to say about suffering. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the importance of suffering. I'll just mention a couple of things here. First of all, that the, the incarnation is how uh, Christ was enabled to suffer. Of course, in his divine person, as the second person of the Trinity, God is not liable to suffering. He is beyond, you know, us inflicting any pain upon God. And so he can't suffer. And so in order to make himself liable to suffering, Christ took upon himself human flesh to make it so that he could suffer on behalf of his people and so that he could achieve and accomplish the atonement by being made liable to suffering. Also, when we think about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think it's very important for us to remember that Christ suffered his entire life. Now, we, we tend to focus upon the when his sufferings were intensified in the last week of his ministry and certainly in the last day of his uh, time here just on the day of the, that he was crucified. That's where most of the focus goes when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering. But the reality is, is that he suffered his entire life. Uh, you think about right in the very beginning and the, the very meager ways in which he was born, and born into a feeding trough. I know we glamorize it a little bit or make it something nostalgic when we refer to it, you know, as a crate, as cradle or the, in a manger, and so forth. But it basically, he was born in a barn. He was, I have a barn. It's not a very wonderful place to think about being born when you have the, the animals that are there and so forth. And, you know, it's, um, so Christ was born. And then right away after his birth, of course, then uh, they were seeking to kill him. 
And so he had to flee to a, another country in order to escape the uh, the persecution that he was under. And you think later on in his life where he was tempted of the devil and so forth. All throughout his life, Christ suffered, and all of that suffering was part of the active obedience of Christ. He was keeping the law of God even even while he was going through this suffering in his life and so forth, and it was, of course, as part of the passive obedience of Christ as well. It was, uh, the atonement was objective, and the atonement makes its primary impression upon God the Father to whom it was offered. You know, we have this tendency, a propensity, to constantly make everything about us, first and foremost. And so when we think about the, the atonement of Christ in our, in our natural condition here, unfortunately, we tend right away to say, well, what's in it for me? What did the atonement have to do for me? Well, really, when we study the atonement, we find that the, the primary impression that the, that the atonement made, first and foremost, was upon God, God the Father. He was the offended party. He was the one that was offended by our rebellion against him and all of our iniquities and our transgressions and our sins that we had committed. It was all committed against God. God the Father is the one who was offended. So the atonement is offered to God. Christ offers himself as the high priest and the sacrifice as well. He offers up himself unto God in the atonement. It says in Isaiah chapter 53, that great seminal chapter of Isaiah, speaking about the suffering sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically in verses 10 and 11, it says this, it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul a, an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. So that satisfaction that's spoken about there at the end, at the end of the part that I read, that, uh, that, that is speaking about the atonement. Christ made satisfaction unto God by the offering of himself for our sins. So it was objective in that the primary impression was made upon God the Father. You know, this is one of the greatest ways that you will find the assurance of salvation, is if you first of all consider the objective truths about salvation rather than the subjective realities of those truths in your life. In other words, if you look to yourself for assurance of salvation, there'll be some markers that will be there that ought to be there, in your life, some things that you can look at, that you could draw assurance from, and so forth. You know, your hatred for sin and the progress that you've made in sanctification, although it's not as far as you would like to have made by any stretch of the imagina imagination. But so there'll be certain markers in your life that you can point to, and you'll be able to draw some level of assurance from those things. But by far, you'll draw most of your assurance of salvation from the objective views, from looking at who God is, what God has designed, what Christ has done on your behalf. As uh, I think it was 
the great uh, Robert Murray McShane, who said, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. And that's how you gain a greater sense of assurance and confidence in the Christian life, at what God has done on your behalf, not so much what subjectively what is taking place in your life. Remember this, too, that the atonement was definite. Christ made atonement with a definite purpose in view. We've got to remember that. You know, a definite purpose was in view when Christ did this. And that purpose was to save sinners. Christ died to save sinners. The atonement was done in order to save sinners. Now, he did not die just to make salvation possible for people. Rather, he, di- he died to make salvation secure for a certain group of people. In his death, Christ was the actual substitute and the actual surety for all those for whom he died. He didn't die just to make salvation possible. He, made, he died to make salvation secure for a certain group of people. This is what we find in the scriptures. And so Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 says this, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Jesus Christ is the surety of the salvation of his people. So not only was it definite that he, he, he definitely died for a certain group of people, he definitely paid for all of the sins of that group of people. But um, it was, the second point on that would be then, it was a particular atonement. It was made specifically on behalf of a certain group of people. That certain group of people was called his people. They're called the Israel of God. They're called the church. They're called the sheep. They're called... Um, the, the bride of Christ. There's many different names for them that are spoken of and that they're referred to in the scriptures, but it's all the same group. It's a subset of the entire human race, and that subset is the group that was given to Christ in eternity past. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for it. So Christ loved the church. He doesn't love the the entire world. Well, you might be able to say that he has some level of love for the whole world in the sense that God, you know, feeds the world. He clothes the world. There's general uh, common grace that God gives to the entire world. But there is a special, a particular type of grace. There is a particular type of love that is spoken about between Christ and his church, between Christ and his people. And that's what Christ, Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 5. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about it in John's gospel, the very gospel we're looking at here. And we're looking at John 19, but in John's gospel, he says, in uh, the 10th chapter, in the 15th verse, he says, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's the atonement. He doesn't lay down his life for the goats. 
He lays down his life for the sheep. And so this particular group. So the Reformed position is that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to save each and every man that ever lived upon the face of the earth. But the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is only efficient to save only God's elect, only those to whom it has been applied. It has only been applied to the people that have been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to help us to understand this, the uh, Puritan writer, the great John Owen, summarized this. I think this is uh, taken from uh, his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. But the uh, Puritan John Owen summarizes the three possible views of, of who Christ died for. There's only three options. And if we think through this, then we'll see which is the correct option. Number one, door number one is this option, right? Either Christ died for all of the sins of all men, in which case, with that option, we would have to say then that all men are to be saved. This is the view that is held by the universalists. They say that, you know, Christ died for everybody, and therefore everyone is saved. Now, how do we know that that view is wrong? Well, because we know, it's been revealed to us in the Scriptures, that certain people have already died and are already in hell. It says Christ spoke about that he, uh, of those that were given to him by the Father, he lost none, save the son of perdition. And the son of perdition, of course, was Judas Iscariot. And Judas, uh, it was not one of the elect. He was one who died in his sins and, and was in the punishment of hell. And Christ spoke about that. Woe unto him by whom this comes. He says that, that it'd be better for him that he'd never have been born. So we know that people were in hell. Christ spoke about the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And he spoke about the rich man was in hell. He was crying out for just a drop of water to be placed upon his tongue and so forth. And so we see very clearly that, you know, there's a man that is in hell at that time. So this is clearly not the right position. either. So he, he, Christ did not die for all the sins of all men. That, that first option, that first view is rejected. Second, the second view is, well, that Christ died for some of the sins of all men, in which case then nobody will be saved, right? If he didn't die for all of the sins, it's only, it only takes one sin to condemn a sinner to hell, right? So that if you, if you break the law of God in one point, the scripture says, you've broke all the law of God. So, uh, having just a a portion of our sins uh, paid for, the result is still the same. We will still be punished for our sin, the remainder of our sin that we have, and we will not be allowed into God's heaven. We will not be able to have a right relationship with the holy God of heaven. Now, this position that Christ died for some of the sins of all men is really the Arminian position, the position that many people today in in Christendom hold to. They say that uh, Christ died in order to make salvation possible for all people, 
And all you have to do is uh, get in on the salvation that Christ has prepared and provided for you. And the way that you get in on it, you just have to receive it. You just need to receive it. And if you receive it, and then you will, that's it. You'll, you have it because Christ died for all men. And the only thing that is stopping all men from coming to salvation is they haven't cashed the check. They have a check that has been written for them and of total pardon by God because of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. And if they just cash that check, then they, they have forgiveness of sins. Well, um, that, that not cashing of the check is referred to as being unbelief. They don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, isn't unbelief an actual sin? It is revealed to, in the scriptures to be sin itself. Unbelief is, is spoken of as being a sin. Well, if that sin was not paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord Jesus Christ did not pay for all the sins, of every sin that needed to be paid for. Either he paid for them all or he didn't pay for them all. And we say that he paid even for the sin of unbelief. So we reject that second view, the second view saying that Christ died for some of the sins of all men. And we say if he only died for some of the sins of all men, then the case is that none will be saved under that option. No man will be saved under that option. The third view, which we feel is the right view, is that Christ died for all of the sins of some men, in which case some are lost and some are saved. Now that's in keeping with what we find in the Scripture. We don't find in the Scripture that all men are saved. We don't find in the Scriptures that no men are saved, like verse, like the second option. What we find in the Scripture is that some are saved and some are lost. That's what we find in the Word of God. And it's based upon that some men have had all of their sins paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ, and other men have not. Now now you say, well, um, that idea of particular redemption, you know, where do we find that in the Scriptures? Well, Christ died to make atonement for all of the sins of his elect, his church, his sheep, those that have been given to him by the Father. And Christ refers to them very often in the Scriptures. For instance, in John chapter 6 and verse 37, he says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. So he's referring to that there was a group of people given to him by the Father. And this group that was given to him by the Father, referred to as his seed throughout the Scriptures, referred to him, again, as his elect, his church, his sheep, all of these different names, but this this subset of the human race has been given to Christ in eternity past. Those were the ones that he came in time in order to pay the price for their sins, all of their sins. All of the sins of all of the people of God have been totally paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in John chapter 17, in verse 2, he says, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So you see, Christ has power over all flesh to do this. But there's only a certain group, the group that was given to him, that Christ then gives eternal life to. 
And again, in John 17 and verse 9, it says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but I pray for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. So he again refers to this idea that a group of people were given to Christ as his reward. The group that, that if Christ accomplished everything that was given to him to do in the, the work of the, of the atonement, the work of redemption, and the Father would reward the, the Lord Jesus Christ by exalting him, giving him a name that is above every name, and so forth. He'd give him riches and rewards for doing this, and he would give him a group of people that were his, were the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what we find in the Scripture. So one of the final characteristics of the Scripture is this, that Christ's atonement was successful. God never tries or attempts to do anything. He always accomplishes whatever he decrees. Now, you and I, we fail, and we, we try to do certain things, and then we fail at it for various reasons. For one, sometimes new information comes to, be, to, to light, you know, that we hadn't considered in the beginning. So because of this new information, then it changes our plans and we don't go through with what we had said we would do, what we had decreed that we would do in the beginning. Sometimes we don't have the enough resources to con- to finish what we had decreed in the beginning. We say, I'm going to build this, and, and then COVID happens, <laughs> and then suddenly you can't get lumber anymore like it's taking place today, right? And so, well, well, we're going to have to change the design. Something is going to have to change. I can't complete it. I can't accomplish what I had decreed. That never, ever happens with God. There is no new information with God. Nothing ever comes to his mind that, that he is not aware of. He knows all things absolutely. He knows all things immediately. There's no new knowledge that ever comes to him. He knows everything, the beginning from the end. He knows all of the all of the uh, contingencies. He knows all of the possibilities associated with all knowledge. There is never any new information. Of course, there's never any new lack of resources on his part. He has everything at his disposal. He's, uh, he is all in all in himself. Whatever is aimed at in the atonement is exactly what Christ accomplished. You know, this word accomplished is used again and again throughout the scriptures. In fact, in the beginning of our study here, I read from John 19, it says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. There's that word accomplished. Christ accomplished exactly what was given to him to do in the atonement. The entire doctrine of gospel assurance rests upon the fact that Christ's atonement did not fail to accomplish its desired end. You can have great uh, assurance, my friend, because he did accomplish everything that he sought out to do. Um, Maybe on tomorrow's broadcast, I'll get to the, the statements of Christ, the fifth and the sixth statements of Christ, I thirst, and then it is finished. We'll look at that, Lord willing, on the broadcast tomorrow. Remember this. The Lord Jesus Christ said, He said you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We'll see you next time. 
You're listening to Knowing the Truth. To keep this ministry strong and coming your way, you can make a financial gift at knowingthetruth.org by clicking on the Donate button. You've been listening to Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling. Knowing the Truth is the outreach ministry of the Mountain Bridge Bible Fellowship in Traveler's Rest. For more information about the church and radio ministry, visit us on the web at knowingthetruth.org. The opinions expressed on today's program are those of the announcers, their guests, and callers, and do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of His Radio Talk, His Radio Network, or the Radio His Training Radio Talk Network. Is w-